Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotomous, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hey everyone, welcome to our latest episode. Today we are here with Candice Lukasik, postdoctoral research associate at John C. Danforth Center of Religion and Politics. Uh, she specializes in religion, race, and migration, specializing in Middle East, Middle Eastern Christianity, U.S. geopolitics, and Muslim Christian relations. Thank you so much, Candice, for being on the show here with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. So today we are discussing her article, Economy of Blood, the Persecuted Church, and the Racialization of American Cops. Um, Before we get started, I have to say this, and this might be so because I am a Muslim convert, but this is, Mm. and I do have a lot of conservatives in my family and being a, a veteran, I have a lot of conservative friends. And then on the other side, I have, I live in California. So I still have a lot of liberal friends and family. Um, but this was a very, um, very intense article to read. Um, I did enjoy it. Uh, uh, and we'll get into it. But a lot of the stuff you discuss, it's like, it's not surprising. But at the same time, it is surprising. Um, but right. yes, <laughs> yes. So Les, why don't you go ahead and get us started today? So my first question for you, Candice, well, you have that, you have such a broad field of study. It does seem that your current focus is on religion and politics. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you into this focus? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Um, so I really have to go all the way back to, to high school, actually. Um, uh, and in high school, I was, you know, quite politically active, I guess you could say, um, I still don't know where that comes from, but, you know, I was writing op-eds against the Iraq war, arguing for um, pro-choice positions um, in the Supreme Court. Um, this is in the early 2000s, just to give you a, a, a time frame here. Um, and just writing about the kind of broader U.S. political field. So during the summer after I graduated high school, um, I took part uh, in an Arabic program through the State Department. Um, what is now the program is now known as NYSLI um, and that program was in Egypt um, and so that experience really kind of catapulted me into thinking about politics beyond the U.S. Um, I think prior to that experience I was very much kind of focused in a U.S. political landscape um, and so from that experience as well though I began to focus more broadly on um, comparative religion and thinking about Muslim Christian relations. So I was introduced to, during that trip, Middle Eastern Christianity and particularly Coptic Orthodox Christianity um, and became ca- really captivated by Coptic history and present day kind of issues, um, whether that be around their minority status in Egypt, um, issues of sectarian violence, um, and church-state relations. So while I was a political science major during my undergrad, um, I became more and more interested in how um, history, culture, and religion impact upon uh, political contexts, both uh, at the national and transnational level. And these interests really developed over the many trips I took to Egypt 
and elsewhere in the region. You know, I've traveled to Lebanon, um, Palestine, Jordan, um, Oman um, since 2007, expanding kind of my network of of um, expertise and friends and really people that are like family and my knowledge in the region. Um, but it was really during um, my MA thesis I did on Coptic political groups after the 2011 Egyptian revolution that I realized how much I kind of enjoyed thinking with people um, and attending to kind of more intimate everyday relations of religion and politics. Um, and it was also around then that I turned to the work of my late advisor, um, Saba Mahmoud, um, who was uh, writing a second book on Egypt and minority, um, the more minority condition on cops. Um, and I was really in awe of her kind of interdisciplinary spirit, I guess you could say, um, coming from, I mean, she had her own background in political science, urban planning, um, and architecture, and I was coming from you know, a, a background of political science, interested in diplomatic work at one point in time, and then um, area studies, pursuing Middle Eastern um, studies, kind of academic focus. And then it was really from there that I pursued anthropology because of her, like really as a means to think about the different scales of power that um, I saw like impacting upon everyday religion and politics um, in the Middle East. And then now uh, in the United States, um, following those folks that I was working with uh, in Egypt uh, to the U.S. context. So, so in this article, um, you're basically discussing, well, you discuss a lot in this article. Um, but one of the things you discuss is Coptic Egyptians really trying to find their place in the American Christian community while still being associated with the Arab culture um, and trying to distance themselves from that at, in some aspects. Um, so in your article, you do mention that Coptic Orthodox dioceses in America have also encouraged their uh, congregations to racially identify themselves on the U.S. Census as Coptic. Granted that race is not a biological concept, how is it that they perceive their faith as a category of race? Yeah, this is a super interesting question and one that I am still trying to grapple with, I think, for for the book that I'm working on. Um, and, you know, just to kind of hone in on that one context, because I think it's super interesting as to why um, the LA Diocese at the time, this is in 2010, um, were advocating for people to cop to put Coptic under race. So in Los Angeles, this is, you know, specifically about the 2010 U.S. Census, um, the L.A. Coptic Diocese, um, like, put on their website at the time um, kind of a Q&A as to why cops um, should place Coptic under race. So, like, just, you know, a couple of examples um, from that were like, you know, why isn't it improper to include religion in the census, right? And so, you know, typically what is understood as Coptic is, you know, religious identity. And what they argued instead was that um, we are, you know, emphasizing that you should put Coptic under race because we believe it to be an ancient um, Egyptian race, that Copts are an ancient Egyptian race. 
Um, and so it's not just, uh, you know, a religious, um, it doesn't just have a religious connotation. And another question that they asked was, you know, what is the benefit of writing Coptic? And, you know, they, they answered saying that, you know, we hope that cops will be recognized as an important race within American society. And so, like, you can see from these two configurations, it's like why the, the LA Diocese at the time was emphasizing Coptic under race. Um, is that like line of reasoning was for political purposes, obviously to gain recognition and organizing capacity vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. state, California, and the and, you know, broader U.S. society. Um, the LA Diocese wanted to push for that identification, right? Because in, in the U.S. context, um, difference is really administered based on you know, racial identification. Um, but the U.S. Census discourse you know, it's, you know, very specific to a U.S. context, but it's also part of a, a kind of a broader, longer history of thinking about cops, not simply as a religious group, but also considering Coptic as an ethno-racial identity. So while there are kind of new emerging considerations of this in diaspora contexts like the U.S. and thinking about um, you know, the, the U.S. racial context, et cetera, and U.S. racial history. Um, I just want to briefly kind of mention um, how colonial discourse on cops um, as like a distinct, as distinct from Arab, Egyptian, Muslims as quote unquote descendants of the pharaohs um, influences um, this, this interpretation by the Coptic LA diocese, um, for example. So, Euro-American missionaries like British colonial rulers in Egypt, you know, in the 19th, early 20th century, as well as Egyptologists uh, alike, they argue that Copts uh, were distinct from Egyptian Muslims. And Egyptologists would describe Copts as having blood that was, you know, uncontaminated by intermarriage with Arabs and Black Africans. Um, and they considered Egyptian Muslims to simply just be Arabs. And so, you know, to be fair, it, it wasn't just Westerners who were engaged in this discourse, right? It wasn't just an implantation like from um, European or American missionaries, British colonial rulers, and these academics from Europe and the United States, but it was also Coptic elites, like Coptic intellectuals themselves as well. Um, they were involved in like processes of genetic testing, like craniological examinations at the time, like among other race science um, of, the, of the time period. So this is not to say that the, the census determination of the LA diocese in 2010 um, is directly connected to these histories in Egypt, but there are some remnants of these discourses that remain and intersect with the kind of black-white binary in the US racial context. So like just as in the colonial period, kind of setting, setting up the community against, you know, the, the Muslim other, the Muslim heathen, or the black other, um, allowed them to make themselves distinct. And this, I think, deploys itself in unique ways in the U.S. context as well. In order to understand, like, the U.S. racial context, um, especially with, you know, with regard to um, newer uh, migrant groups, or not so newer migrant groups in the U.S., 
that um, there are multiple layers and multiple histories that come together when um, migrant com communities express um, themselves along racial lines in the US. Like for example, in Egypt, difference is articulated on the religious level, right? You're either, for the most part, you're either a Muslim or a Christian, right? But in the US context, um, cops need to kind of retranslate themselves upon a uh, US racial configuration that is quite different, I would say, um, than the Egyptian context. Not to say that you know there aren't um, uh, iterations of, of, of uh, similar kind of anti-Black discourses in Egypt or kind of uh, white versus black discourses in, in the Egyptian context. But I'm just saying that it that is quite different and connected to kind of homeland contexts um, uh, in the diaspora. Yeah, I was actually going to say, you you know, you you clearly have a lot of, um, uh, you've done a lot of thinking and research on this. It sounds like you've got some other work um, with that. Is that part of the uh, book that you mentioned? Yeah, um, absolutely. So this article is uh, a, a first look into my broader um, book project, which you know, centers on the some of the things that I talk about in the article about Coptic migration, um, specifically over the past you know, 10, 15 years to the U.S., um, the reasons for migration in Egypt, the, the ways of migration, particularly through the green card lottery, um, as well as family reunification and um, asylum seeking. Um, but it's mainly trying to think about how uh, the, the po American political focus on saving Middle Eastern Christians on their persecution, on Muslim violence against them. So we're talking about kind of at the Washington DC level and of how that impacts upon um, kind of Coptic community formation between Egypt and the US. So the book, you know, just as my uh, kind of broader fieldwork has done, really tries to follow migrants from Egypt to the US and thinks about how they're translating um, these American political discourses onto an Egyptian uh, terrain, um, how they see America in Egypt. And then once they come to the United States, um, how they are reconfiguring their own um, traumatic histories of violence um, and expressions of you know, minority persecution and minority ostracization in Egypt um, through an American racial and new American racial and political system. So um, that's really the first book and it goes through a variety of different sites, you know, whether um, working with folks in Upper Egypt uh, who are applying, who were applying to the green card lottery um, to go to the US, um, hanging out with asylum seekers in the US, attending uh, trials along those lines, um, as well as uh, you know, working with uh, local activists uh, in New Jersey along the lines of kind of um, the LGBTQ curriculum, um, uh, there uh, in public schools, um, that's kind of the last uh, chapter which focuses on um, kind of the translation of Coptic uh, conservatism onto an American um, political terrain. Um, and so, yeah, that's really the first, um, the first book that 
um, will hopefully be out in the world in the next year or so. I would definitely like to ask you to keep us updated on that. That's something that I'd like to um, maybe bring you back on the show for. Yeah, for sure. So in your article, you mentioned that Pope Tuedros has been refusing the labels of persecution despite some of the incidents that have uh, happened out there. Can you, without without um, too much conjecture, can you maybe talk about why you think he may be refusing that label? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I know you know very well why he's refusing that label, and it, you really can't. Um, you can't answer this question without knowing the Egyptian context um, very well, right? The, the, the scene that I describe in the article, um, you know, it's at this very broad meeting of the Coptic diaspora in New Jersey at, at the um, auditorium in, at Rutgers University. Uh, this is a couple of years back. Um, and you have a local politician there, uh, Chris Smith, who has been a been a politician for New Jersey for a very long time, um, and very uh, keyed into discourses on you know religious freedom advocacy um, and things like that uh, in the U.S. Congress, and so he's making a speech before the Pope, obviously keyed into his own political concerns and interests uh, in Congress, but also knowing what the Coptic community in New Jersey. Um, is interested in, and they're very much interested in making sure that the truth about what's happening in Egypt uh, is coming to light, whether it be, you know, incidents of discrimination or, you know, more violent incidents that happen. Um, and the Pope, though, the Pope is very much coming from a national Egyptian context. Um, while he's visiting his faithful um, in New Jersey at the time, um, he's also keyed into how his comments would read and translate back into an Egyptian context. So let me just kind of give you an overview of this. Um, Church-state relations in Egypt are incredibly um, fraught. At one point in time, you know, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, um, the former Pope of the Coptic Orthodox Church, Pope Shenouda, uh, was very defiant to the then uh, president, President Anwar el-Sadat, um, and he was very vocal about uh, the incidents that were happening against cops at the time, violent incidents, and the president was very frustrated with this, so much so to the point that he put the pope under house arrest or monastery arrest um, for years, even after um, the Egyptian president was assassinated, the following Egyptian president kept the Pope, the Coptic Pope, um, under monastery arrest. Um, but when he emerged, he was much more um, tame, I guess, in his political perspectives. Um, and the current Pope, Pope Tuedros, is very, very tame um, in his perspectives. Um, and he, wants to maintain kind of national unity with the Egyptian state. And so if that means kind of saying, yeah, these incidents, they're not that big of a deal. We need to look at like the bigger picture. Things are much calmer under this current president. You know, things are going well. So we're going to just not talk about these incidents because, you know, we're a national church and I, we care about Egypt 
um, you know, more than we care about acquiescing to narratives outside of Egypt, even if those narratives come from, you know, cops that are outside of Egypt um, as well. So the Pope is really, you know, trying to eschew any critiques from the Egyptian state uh, while also trying to balance his faithful that are outside of Egypt that have greater freedom to express um, themselves um, without fear of, of, uh, of prosecution. Wow, okay. So it definitely, uh, and, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that sounds like some very uh, you know, direct persecution and um, uh, don't want to say the, the wrong word here, but it, like they've sort of um, groomed the the church to their liking there yeah i would you know i would yes and no i would say that you're right but also i would say that the church has its own agency and um the current pope pope Tradros, is very keen on promoting the this relationship and it's not that he is kind of um being threatened um uh, into saying these things but um, just, you know, he's actually taking the lead in, in kind of this Egyptian nationalist um, discourse uh, in, in quite a different way from the previous pope um, who uh, passed away um, right after the Egyptian revolution in 2012. So, uh, you know, it is to say that you're absolutely right, Les, but, um, but that there are other perspectives there there too to say that you know the church does have the church hierarchy the clerical hierarchy has its own agency in making these decisions too yeah i mean i, I definitely wouldn't want to try and say that they don't have their own agency I, I just mean that um i mean well the phrase the burn hand teaches best right when you look mm. at the at the history of what's happened in the state you know what not to do right right i mean they've set a precedent there haven't they yeah uh indeed i think that if it puts the church as well as Coptic communities um, that are not in the clerical hierarchy in a very um, precarious position. Uh, so, so you do have uh, that situation in your article where there's an Egyptian Muslim who would not sell his land to the Coptic Egyptians to build a church. And then uh, at the end of that, you write a diaspora plays kinship in and across migration where Coptic Christian difference matters sparingly in an American Christian context. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that statement? Yeah, absolutely. So so in that context, it, it was about the building of a new Coptic church in New Jersey. And um, I was speaking to kind of how Egyptian sectarian and security contexts travel with Coptic Christians to the U.S. And in many instances, these kind of seemingly American contexts are really transnational Egyptian ones. Kind of getting back to the conversation that we just ended about the Pope uh, being in at Rutgers, uh, you know, sports auditorium, um, speaking to his faithful, you know, in the diaspora in New Jersey, uh, in front of an American politician, that um, there was a lot of kind of transnational Egyptian contexts playing themselves out in that. Um, but let me explain a bit, little bit more about this case here. Uh, so in Egypt, Coptic Christians have traditionally had a very difficult time building new churches. 
due to government limitations and kind of local contexts of intercommunal um, animosity, let's just say. And if you go to Egypt, however, you'll see that churches that are built are built in extravagance, enormous domes and the kind of tallest bell towers. Uh, and for many reasons, because of this threat of scarcity of not being able to build, like this might be the last church that we can build, um, and of securitization, you know, again, like that they won't be able to kind of build any more beyond this one authorized building. Um, and this like affect of scarcity, I would argue, you know, travels to the U.S. as well, where the Coptic Church real estate um, amongst the various dioceses, et cetera, is vast. Um, and that could be a whole other conversation in and of itself. But that being said, the incident of the Egyptian Muslim landowner in New Jersey not selling his piece of land uh, to this new Coptic church is, I would argue, um, kind of shot through homeland contexts of sectarian tensions and cultural trauma of scarcity of this situation I was just um, keying uh, into of the fear of like not being able to build and grow the community. So what I'm saying there is that like homeland, homeland and diaspora contexts are collapse in many ways. And the kind of Coptic kin context of Egypt, you know, kinship in Egypt, Coptic kinship in Egypt are played out um, like in a new kind of American, a US uh, context. Um, and so, when I say, you know, diaspora plays kinship in and across migration, it's really thinking about the collapse of these various scales, national scales and transnational ones. Um, and we can kind of see this through the, the migratory um, experience. This, uh, this next question, uh, I, I don't know, I had feelings for it. Um. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, things I've gone through as, you know, when I did wear hijab and, and stuff and the, um, but anyways, I'll just dive right into it. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, towards the end of your article, you, you mentioned, I actually, I think it was three Coptic women, but only two of them were part of the, the conversation. Um, they're in their twenties. One of them, uh, Justina, uh, she had a hard time believing Muslims would hire Christians and that she believed the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to take over America. You ex you explain a bit, can you explain a bit to our listeners how this sort of rhetoric becomes embedded into these communities and how they are intertwined with both Egyptian and far-right U.S. perceptions? Yeah, um, this is a really interesting uh, scene that happened before me. Um and it's just one of many, I would say, that, uh, that I experienced during field work. Um, so let me just break things down a little bit uh, through the example. Um, so Justina, obviously this is a pseudonym, um, is a second generation copt born and raised in New Jersey. Yet her parents you know, are still very much connected to Egyptian political context. And Justina also travels to the to Egypt pretty regularly. So her parents are connected to these Egyptian political contexts through television. So maybe they watch Egyptian, you know, news programs. 
um, through various, uh, you know, cable outlets. You can buy like a whole like Egyptian television package that you can watch instead of American cable. Um, they follow these Egyptian political contexts through social media, Facebook groups, for the most part, Facebook groups, um, especially the first generation of folks, um, or just communications with, you know, family members on Viber and WhatsApp. Um, and Facebook Messenger. So they're keyed into Egyptian political context. Um, and in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood's rise to power after 2011 was of major concern to religious minorities like the Copts. Um, so historically, some of the political discourses of the organization and other um, Islamist organizations have varyingly led to um, increased violence against cops. You know, this is not to say that um, this is not a comment, uh, you know, demonizing them or in any way, but from the perspective of cops in Egypt, um, and not just cops, but also kind of more secular minded um, Egyptians or more kind of moderate Muslims uh, as well, uh, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood um, to political power was of concern. And so, you know, these, those very real contexts um, in Egypt followed Coptic migrants to the U.S. Um, and just to pause before getting to the U.S. part of things, um, you know, after, after 2011, there's a number of, you know, kind of incidents that happen, um, violent incidents against cops in Egypt, and leading up to uh, when the coup took place in 2013 that um, uh, de uh, the then um, Muslim Brotherhood uh, Egyptian president, Mohamed Morsi, from, from power, um, and where the current Egyptian president, um, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, took power um, at that time. Um, following uh, the coup, um, there was a spate of church burnings that took place throughout Upper Egypt and elsewhere. Um, where dozens upon dozens of churches were burned. And so um, this was obviously a, a monumental <laughs> incident that took place um, for cops in Egypt, but how it was read throughout the diaspora was also something of major kind of concern. So those very real contexts in Egypt, you know, followed Coptic migrants to the U.S. and um, intermixed with, I would say, um, so it's not just a recent context, but kind of a much more broader one, um, intermixed with far right, or maybe like not so far right rhetoric on the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and other Islamist organizations. So that kind of rhetoric is kind of infused with a post-Cold War battle for the future of Western civilization and the threat of Islam to Western civilization. So. You know, 9-11 and kind of the more recent rise of ISIS after 2014 have really, you know, continued this rhetoric. I, I don't want to say that like 9-11 was the start of it, for sure not. Um, but we can kind of take those as kind of very important markers of the development of this rhetoric. So under Trump, um, such discourses around Islam, uh, you know, made their way you know, again, not to say that they they were new in any way, but they made their way again to into the halls of Congress. You know, so for example, there was a hearing before the subcommittee on national security 
um, in the House of Representatives in 2018 entitled The Muslim Brotherhood's Global Threat. That was the title of the, of the committee meeting. Um, and so at the time, uh, at, you know, or at that time, uh, it was, you know, the U.S. government led by Trump was aiming to designate the Muslim Brotherhood a foreign terrorist organization. And, and just last fall, so it, it kind of dissipated at that time, but just last fall, uh, a bill was reintroduced by um, Ted Cruz to do that just again. So it's kind of a recurring discussion about the Muslim Brotherhood. So such broader kind of geopolitical context of US empire, like I would argue um, the centering of rhetoric around the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization um, and the international reach of the US far right, or again, I mean, not so far right. There are a lot of people that are involved in, in perpetuating this rhetoric. Um, I would say like intersect with the national and local Egyptian uh, context in the thinking of a Coptic American like Justina. So it's not just, you know, we should analyze this from the perspective of Justina, but there are a lot of different layers as to how her, she as a Coptic American, uh, a transnational, you know, person, if we can say, um, uh, engages this kind of rhetoric. So hearing about Egyptian context from her parents, you know, following Egyptian news and thinking about the Muslim Brotherhood through an Egyptian context kind of contributes to her understanding of them in U.S. society um, and taking into account homeland context in kind of migrant translation, transnational translation should not really be taken for granted. Those like homeland context, those histories, those traumas are reconfigured, like repositioned through different generations in, in, in the U.S. There was, um, I feel like there's a lot more to this article. I just, I just didn't know how to ask questions. But yeah, I feel well, like you we can, you can read the book. It. You can read yes, the book. Yes, read the book. <laughs> there's a lot for you to read there. Um, but I found it interesting. It's like they're trying to fit into this, American Christian community and it's like the community is like yeah you're Christian you're one of us but at the same time they're like no you're too brown for us you're not really one of us and it's 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 and it's like they're in limbo right totally totally and I, I don't think that you know that's I think there are a lot of communities that are in limbo um, I think that the Coptic case is just really unique in the U.S governments um, and foreign policy fascination with the future of Christians in the Middle East and um, the, you know, quote unquote, threat of, of terrorism and Islam um, in their eyes, uh, on in, you know, influencing um, radicalization, um, etc. Uh, cops kind of take on this very unique position between different worlds as Christians and as Middle Easterners and as, um, you know, as immigrants, uh, they have to navigate a lot of different worlds and different, uh, you know, discourses and contexts. Um, and it produces some very weird politics sometimes. So we've dug into a lot of your work in the past, um, 
45 minutes. So I, I, I just kind of want to ask, um, how can the average reader benefit from reading your work, whether it's this article or your book that's going to be coming out? What benefits can the average reader get out of this? And why should more people be reading it? Yeah, um, I think this is a great question. Uh, so thanks for asking it. I think, you know, kind of bridging from my answer on Justina, I would say that, you know, I aim to highlight kind of two interconnected themes in my work on um, in migration, religion, and politics. So kind of a broad uh, benefit, I would say, is that we need to think about migration not just uh, as about the destination or even the process, like from homeland to diaspora, right? Um, but rather, we need to attend to both homeland contexts, like why migrants want to and end up leaving. Um, this matters enormously for considering migration. And it matters because those contexts impact upon diaspora politics. So really my work is trying to think about the different scales, the different spaces by which we really need to think about migration as an abstract idea, but as one very much grounded in real, uh, real people um, uh, between here and there, between quote unquote home and, and a, quote unquote abroad. And then just, you know, to, you know, finally just something very kind of basic. <laughs> is that Middle Eastern Christians are more than discourses of violence and persecution. Like they are more than historical objects of observation for people that are in late antiquity studies or whatever else. They are citizens as well as migrants with power to reshape broader narratives of citizenship, human rights and class conditions in places like Egypt or Iraq or Palestine or Lebanon, um, as well as racial justice, political organizing, and popular culture in the US. They are not just a small minority, they are a community that has a lot of power. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.